guys, Jim Cox, and I'm here today with an interview with Jennifer Paul. She is a permaculture act, uh, activist uh, on Maui, and um, we connected on Facebook. Um, she's done a lot of amazing work, and glad to have her here to uh, share some of her expertise. So, Jen, thanks for taking the time to chat today. Yeah, it's great to be here. Awesome. So tell us a little, about, a little bit about yourself. How did you get involved in uh, permaculture? I know we talked before, it's kind of an interesting journey. Yeah, well, I, I moved out to the West Coast right after college and uh, had done a lot of backpacking out in the Yosemite and up and down the West Coast and moved out there to go tree planting in British Columbia. And I did four seasons tree planting, both in the Rockies of British Columbia and on a boat, living on a boat up the Inside Passage, planting trees from the north of Vancouver Island up to the Alaskan border. And that's where I met my first permaculture people, was up in British Columbia, living up in the hills on their own homesteads. And when I came back to Seattle in the off seasons, where I worked in the trades, I um, connected with the Pacific Northwest permaculture community maybe at age 23. And I was completely in love with that community from the very beginning. And I started attending workshops and reading the books and um, you know, basically that became my community from that point forward. My career has taken a lot of you know, zigs and zags over the years as a younger woman. I was very much about pioneering careers for women in, all, in different fields. So I've worked in aviation, I was a helicopter pilot, I was a tree planner, I was a frontline firefighter, I had a truck driving license, I, you know, I did carpentry, I did all those kinds of things. Um, and I, then at some point I moved onto a farm and I built my own yurt to live in with my partner and uh, we grew a lot of our own food and, and you know, belong to a food buying club. Like we really learned how to be a lot more uh, efficient with our systems. And that's where I started learning about all the different systems to grow food. So the fertility systems, the water catchment systems, the appropriate technologies, like we were doing that in our, in our twenties. So then let's see Then after building our first yurt, people got really stoked about the yurts and, and asked, well, will you build one for me? And so that led to us starting our own yurt building company. So we had a company called Nesting Bird Yurt Company. The company, you know, tripled in size every year for seven years running, which was a disaster. And, uh, you know, we, we grew into like a, you know, 10,000 square foot manufacturing space with over 20 employees. And we incurred a lot of debt while we were growing our business and having to move to bigger and bigger and bigger facilities. And, um, and the, we had a very high quality product and we did a lot of work with people helping them you know, learn the systems to live off grid. And for me, it also led into a lot of policy work on how to get the government to approve living in your yurt year round. Hmm. So the, you know, the you know, quick reality of that is that you can live in a 20,000 square foot house by yourself and keep the heat at 95 and run around in your underwear all winter, but you can't live a family of four in a yurt and burn three cords of wood. Like that's against the law because you don't have the proper insulation in the roof, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you, you know, fundamentally, how do you legalize sustainability? I mean, that's the, that's a core issue today still. Yeah, still. So, you know, if you have gray water or composting toilets or off-grid systems or just a, an unapproved single family residence, um, what does that look like? So our company did well, and then um, you know after 
nobody bought a yurt for over six months. And that was the end of that business. Hmm. So when the yurt company ended, I, you know, I grew up overseas. I, I grew up in London. My dad was a foreign correspondent. We chased his career all around the world. I had a very, you know, privileged international upbringing. Um, you know, it was very wonderful to live in England and France. I lived in the Soviet Union at the end of the Soviet era and saw all of the ills of that culture and society and governmental system. And, um, you know, at the end of my yurt business, which was basically seven days a week, 18 hours, it was the longest work jag I'd ever done. Um, I decided I wanted to go just work in permaculture full time. So um, I headed down to Costa Rica and I did a permaculture training there and ended up being the translator for the course. And then that led me to work with people down in Panama. And then I spent the next five or six years, I would do like four, five, six months a year working in Central America doing permaculture work, which eventually got me over to Hawaii, which eventually got me to Maui. So I've been on Maui eight years now and, you know, I'm 57 and I am now working, you know, my career has been in permaculture for a long time now. And most of my work is in consulting and design. And when I have a bigger project, which happens pretty regularly now, I just pull a team together. So if I need a hydrologist, if I need an earthworks person, if I need some, you know, like a client might be wanting to raise money for a big project, that design is going to require really beautiful artwork. So I have, I have a whole bunch of artists that I work with. I have a couple of favorites. I've done some really great projects with over time. And so I have my, my own, you know, CAD designers when I need like super accurate computer assisted drawings that they're going to do all the overlays of the zones and the sectors and the water and the you know irrigation systems or the whatever we're going to put in the design. I have a team that um, as the lead designer I bring in people and then I you know I curate their art or I curate their CAD or I you know and then the final portfolio that I give back to the client is it's pretty sophisticated at this point. Hmm. That's a lot of uh, that's a lot of rabbit holes for us to go down. So I appreciate the uh, the background. Before we uh, lose touch with it, uh, I'd like to go back to the uh, your experience with like uh, trying to build the yurt and you know the different issues that you ran into. You you mentioned the McMansions uh, get it basically a a free a free uh, get out of jail card and you know, I guess people who are on a more sustainable bent are, you know, obviously shackled in terms of with what they're limited in terms of what they're able to do. What, what are the forces that drive that? I mean, clearly it's, it's local regulation in terms of zoning and things, but I mean, is it a matter of homeowners in an, in an area or is it a matter of like corporate influence over the political system that kind of dictates that kind of limitation? I mean, where is that restraint coming from? Because it seems like it's pretty, you know, widespread. Yeah, that, that's a, that's a really good question. There's lots of answers to that. Um, you know, the, the origins of the building codes come from really unsafe buildings. 
right? So if you can imagine the tenements of New York City in the you know massive immigration phases of a century ago, yeah, those were really substandard and they were dangerous. And so when you have requirements for a single family residence, let's say you have to have two doors and you have to have a closet and running hot water and a toilet, like they, I get it. Like there's reasons that you have building codes. There used to be a separate category called owner builder. So if you bought a piece of land and you wanted to build your own house and it wasn't necessarily to code, you could. But if you were going to sell it, you couldn't. Like you, you, it wasn't up to code for sale. Systematically over the years, the owner builder rules have been eliminated, you know, state by state. Hmm. One of the reasons that the, um, you know, the, the affordable, sustainable, you know, off-grid, you know, owner-built home has gone away is that the construction lobby is so powerful. Mm -hmm. So when, when you look at, you know, who's got their finger in the pie of construction, um, who's going to also influence, you know, policy so that that benefits them. So if you're going to be in the roofing industry or the insulation industry or the HVAC industry or the Tyvex industry or the plumbing industry. So the an example would be you have to, by law, wrap your house in Tyvex. And the house is so tight that it's toxic inside that you get to off gassing all the stuff. And so you have to put in this really $30,000 HVAC system because the Tyvex doesn't let your house breathe. And so there's, there's, there's layers to that, that are, that are um, a little bit more, you know, insidious for me. Yeah. Yeah. So helping, um, legislators you know understand the benefits of affordable housing one thing we worked on very hard in washington state was um farm worker housing so you know farm worker housing which is generally deplorable i mean it's really really horrible like they'll put them in like metal shipping con containers and it's already 105 degrees and um but how do you we wanted to do yurts as uh potential farm worker housing, but they weren't up to code. So how do you work with a, a beautiful, dignified, you know, living space for people that's really affordable for the farm owners or for the people that are hiring? Um, what systems do you need to put in place? So what I find is, you know, over my years of experience working in this kind of policy influence stuff, like I've even, you know, in recent year, you know, been sitting on the climate advisory committee to our county council, right, on and mostly on regenerative ag and things like that. But, you know, being involved in policy work takes a lot of patience. And the, my favorite thing about policy work is the pilot project. They don't have to commit to it. You can do something innovative. Uh, you can learn from it. It can span a long period of time. And you, you can often scale jump from those pilot projects. So if you have the bandwidth or you have the longevity to stick with the pilot project, you can actually you know, make, make big strides in your policy stuff. Hmm. Do you think that's something that can be done nationwide in terms of that kind of an approach to kind of bringing reform on a local basis? Or is that just kind of unique to to Maui or to your area? It's so, it, the culture of policy work is so different mm -hmm. state by state and, and even county by county. Like some people are progressive and some people are not. And mm -hmm. some people are wedded to not being progressive and some people are stridently progressive. And so it really depends on what the culture of your own bureaucracy is. Mm -hmm. Some people in bureaucratic positions that like an example would be like the UL listing. So let's say that you want to put in a wood stove in your house, 
right, if you live in a colder climate. So if you buy a wood stove that's already got a UL stamp, right, it's already pre-approved, but it's whatever, it, it, or, or an electrical box or whatever you're going to do, if it has that UL stamp, the inspector just gets to sign it off. They don't have to think about it. They don't have mm -hmm. to change the rules. They don't have to be responsible for it. If you're going to do a rocket stove, which is incredibly more fuel efficient, incredibly less polluting, it's a passive heat. You light a fire once a day. You, you know, have a thermal mass that heats up, but it doesn't have a UL listing. So now the burden is on the bureaucrat <clears throat> to approve your rocket stove. So what a group of young lawyers in the Portland, Oregon area did, they, they started a, a company or, a, or what was it company? They started an organization called Recode. And what they did was they started to systematically look at the stupid arcane things on the books and challenge them. And that would include things like gray water or rocket stoves or other uh, you know, appropriate technologies for home living and find ways to challenge them in the courts. You can't just say flat out the gray water is illegal forever, right? So yeah. here we are in these um, increasingly dangerous and extended droughts, right? Yeah. So let's look from the permaculture perspective, right? So here's, let's go to some core hydrology ideas of the average American person individual uses between 50 and 100 gallons of potable water a day mm. to flush the toilet, take a shower, wash their dishes, do their laundry, and all that water goes into the pipe, unless you're off-grid, and then has to go through a, a filtration system that then, right, and often that there's, there's failures down that whole chain of, of, you know, cleaning that water, right? Until I hear governments teaching people and mandating gray water, I don't really want to hear about the drought. Like, I mean, I, I'm being a little strident here, but if you can imagine that every household of four can generate 200 gallons of gray water that just has to go through a biofilter, there's fruit trees, there's, there's a lot of water. And I am, I'm astounded that those easy, like low hanging fruit solutions to drought are not being, are not right at the top of policy agendas. Yeah. And yeah. that's the same, it's like an agriculture, like, you know, if you could mandate, it's, it's not so easy to mandate things in this country, you know, like, like if you're China, yeah, it's mandated, right? But here, the mandate is not the, is not the carrots, like it's, it's too oppositional. So we have this, this little triptych of like, there's the, disincentive, there's the incentive, and then there's the mandate down the road when you pass a new law. So the disincentive is if you don't do this, we're going to tax you. The incentive is if you do this, you get a tax break, mm -hmm. you get a rebate, right? And then the eventual one is in five years, we're going to ban this. So you have five years to pull your shit together, right? So there's that, there's like, how do we navigate that in a policy way? So let's look at that from a gray water perspective. So let's do the pilot project on gray water in a whole neighborhood. So Seattle had a, here's a little story. So years ago, um, Seattle would get these, um, after they hardscaped the whole city, right? So we had these salmon runs that come from the Salish Sea up through the, you know, you know, the locks. And in a big storm, our sewer system would get overtaxed and the raw sewage would go down into the, mm. um, into the water systems. Wow. And so the federal government said, 
that's an endangered species. You must figure out how to fix your system. So people from the permaculture community and others teamed up to start designing and installing rainwater gardens, which were bioswales. So they did a couple pilot projects. One was one street. They took one street and they had to get buy-in from the whole community and they took out the curbs. So instead of having a straight shot with the curb, which the water that goes to the drain with all the oil from the street and all that stuff, which of course is flushing into the system with the salmon, they induced a meander. So they put the street with a gentle meander and then they put bioswales all down the side. And then they planted those with all kinds of fabulous things that, that were biofiltration types of plants that were gonna suck up the water and clean the water and have filtration root systems and all that. So not only did it mitigate like 98% of the runoff in that neighborhood, but the cascading benefits were less crime, mm -hmm. beauty, neighbors got to know each other, it was cooler, mm -hmm. right? You, you know, and uh, so like the butterflies, the bees, like there's like only a hundred other things that come from these types of designs. And so that's the permaculture maxim of like, you know, how, you know, the multiple elements serving one function or the, the, you know, the main element serving multiple functions in the system. So we're going to stack functions in these bioswales. We're going to stack functions in these rainwater gardens. So now we're, instead of having a, the problem that we're solving is the solution. So the problem is the solution to all these other things that we need to look at in our cultural mm. landscape. That's awesome. That's an amazing story. I mean, then, I mean, it, can be, or it should be reproduced, obviously, you know, ad infinitum. So Right, that, yes. And so why didn't that get replicated everywhere? Yeah. Well, one, it was expensive. But what ended up happening was that the taking out the curb and the putting in that meander, that didn't hold. But what did hold was the rain garden. Mm. And you see them all over Seattle, you see them all over Portland. Like you see, you know, they're, they're becoming somewhat, you know, it's part of what you do to mitigate what rainwater runoff. And then you have folks like Brad Lancaster down in, you know, Arizona who did his first illegal curb cuts so that the water running down the streets would go into these little swales and they grew native plants. And, you know, that was illegal. And now it's a $40 permit to get your curb cut, <laughs> you know, and they want to do it. So they, you know, the people can learn and you can improve your systems, you know. That's awesome. What, um, in terms of like a question that I've always had is like, why isn't there more done by, let's say a large developer like Toll Brothers with somebody like you in terms of, permaculture and actually utilizing like the outside space around the McMansions to do more social good. Like, have you ever seen that or has that ever even come across as an idea or am I just fantasizing about something that, you know, will never come? Well, you know, if you, you have to dream it first, you know, like if you can't dream it, you can't lean into it, you can't, you can't bring it about. And I think it's important to have dreams like that. And I, um, you know, my dream contract for a design job is to design a whole permaculture development, right? So, I mean, I've worked, I've lived in co-housing, I've worked with eco-villages, you know, and I, I appreciate what those communities do. Um, personally, I don't want to have to meet with 25 families every Sunday for the rest of my life. Like I, I, I really 
understand that the, the, the invisible structures part of the governance of eco-villages and co-housing, it's very burdensome, right? And only a few people, if you're lucky, in that group of co-housing people that come together have any design skills. So what I would like to see happen is, you know, if you had a, if you did a permaculture development, so the biggest example of that is Davis Homes down in California. You can look that up online. There's, there's a 240 home development, but let's just, you know, you know, take that apart for a minute. So to work with a developer who was willing to invest in a permaculture development. So your the economies of scale are that it's all natural building. It's all water catchment and all the hydrology is designed up front. The food, instead of your HOA paying for your chem lawn, your HOA is paying for your CSA box on your doorstep every Monday morning. You know, you have the food forests all in and around there. The, the, the parking's on the outside and the park is in the middle. And so the hierarchy of design in our culture and Western culture is that we have a great need for privacy, right? So where there's your chunk so you own your piece that's your equity proposition any bank will finances it you know you can sell it when you want to move um, and then so there's your that first tier of design then the next one is that liminal space that between space of your private zone going into the the commons area what's in the commons so if you had a smaller house i would love to have a smaller house and a library over there and a music room over there and a kitchen over there and an outdoor in place for my friends to come camp over there. Like if I could go visit all these outdoor and indoor spaces that were part of my community that I that was that was built in, that would be great. I would need a much smaller living space. Uh, and then the other part is like the full commons of like, you know, where's the where's where's the community thing? But in that design, you can have a full-time farmer and a full-time food forest person that live in the community. That's their job. Mm -hmm. Right. So all those systems get building. You have the electric car charging station. You have one Wi-Fi for everybody. Like there's all these economies of scale that happen if you do that kind of design right. If you want to keep it affordable, you have to put it into a governance structure that has a metric built in that makes it affordable. And that would be, for example, a community land trust. So what often happens with these affordable designs out the gate is that if I buy in, it might be affordable at the beginning, but as soon as those fruit trees are mature, and as soon as that landscape and those houses are fabulous, then like you can sell it at whatever price point you want. And then it's then it becomes an, an elite community and that is not necessarily what we're after, right? Mm -hmm. So you can always, um, that's, that's the permaculture part of negotiating contracts. It's like, you know, what is a fair contract? What does it look like that if I wanna have a value proposition, I wanna sell my house and I still wanna make a profit, but maybe it's only 5% per year or like you, you build that into the community land trust model and you have a board rather than having an, a, a consensus agreement in an eco village, which is hard. So let's make it something that's more culturally attuned and it's a more of a, of a value proposition that people understand. But I could probably off the top of my head think of 500 people who if they could buy at market value an affordable 1,000, 1,500 square foot house with all of the gray water, <laughs> composting toilets, built-in food forests, um, you know, charging stations for your cars and a community that I didn't have a burdensome relationship with, they'd be like, sign me up. So where's my developer? So help me find my developer. I would be delighted to work with them as a permaculture designer on these bigger um, 
you know, they can be urban, they can be suburban, and they can certainly be rural as well. So where's the affordable land? Where's the developer who will bank it? And, you know, they have to have their profit margin too. So, you know, let's, let's look at, that's a really great idea. And, you know, you, at that level of housing, you're your own PUD, right? You're your own public utilities, right? So you have to then, there's your bureaucratic edge. Like now I have 50 houses in a development. Well, now I can go to my bureaucratic zoning people and say, I want to do a gray water system for a development. And that's going to go in these bioswales and it's going to have native plants and it's going to attract these pollinators and I'm going to grow food and our carbon footprint is going to plummet. We're going to take care of elders. We're going to have a playground, whatever it is you're going to do in that community that serves the community. Then you can experiment. Yeah. But everything, like everything now, like all of our design stuff, it all has to be seen through the climate change lens now. Mm -hmm. So those types of developments that mean you don't have to drive to the grocery store and you don't, and you are growing your own food and, you know, you're healthier and you're engaged and you know your neighbors. And, you know, these are the important parts of climate resiliency at this stage is like learning how to do them, these home scale appropriate technologies in your neighborhood and grow food in your neighborhood. So we kind of dove right into it, but I meant to ask, how, how do you define permaculture? Like, is there a specific definition to the actual term that is serviceable? Well, you know, you could ask 100 permaculturalists that question and get probably 100 answers. I'll give yeah. you mine. You know, permaculture is a design methodology. It's a design approach for resilient and abundant human systems. Oh. Well, that's a mouthful. So what does that mean? It means that based on ethics and principles that have been developed from the inception of the permaculture community, that we're leaning on these ethics to care for the earth, to care for people. But it's not just care, it's, it's by design. How do you by design care for the earth? How do you by design care for people? How do you by design generate a surplus that you can share and inculcate that you know, um, you know, sensibility into your community? And so you have to, a lot of people are like, well, if you don't have animals in your system, you're not a permaculturist. That's not true. If I live in a permaculture, if I have an apartment, I can be a permaculturist. It's just, it, it's, it's a toolbox. And it's how do you learn the tools of permaculture so you can apply them wherever you are. You can apply them in your office in a high rise. You can apply them in your apartment in the city. You can apply them on your farm. Absolutely. But you, it's not, you know, I'm not all about like, let's, I want to be independent and self-sufficient and live off the grid and, you know, I'm going to have mine. And it's not about that. To me, it's about interdependence. How do we, how do we become the repository of knowledge for some skill that's valuable in our community? So there's my specialty. Mm -hmm. And I'm a generalist and I understand how governance works and I understand how water systems work. And I understand that if I don't clean my solar panels, they're less efficient. Like, like I have, like I have a growing body of knowledge that includes storytelling and it includes um, a reverence for nature. And it includes, um, you know, your kuleana, it's a Hawaiian word, you know, for your, what's your responsibility, but that your responsibility is also your joy. Like when you step into that role as somebody who is needed and valuable in your system, how do you feel about yourself? You feel good. I'm important in this system. I bring, I'm bringing value to my community because I know how to do this thing. And it could be plumbing and it could be peaches, you know, and humans specialize. 
right? So you're the tomato guy and I'm the water gal. Yay. Let's have both of those in our community. I'm the midwife. You make cheese. Like, let's figure it out. And so for me, it's like permaculture, this juncture of the climate crisis, it's how do we live large on a small footprint by design? What are the eddies of human life that help us be creative? What's the new story we have to tell? What story are you telling? You know, and, and it's not about, you know, one of the things I love about permaculture is that it's not, that the ethics are universal, right? You can be any religion, you can be any wealth level and these principles and ethics hold. And I really, um, appreciate how permaculture is growing and changing country by country and you know unlike NGOs that often go in and they want to set themselves up to have a job that endures you know permaculturists generally want to go in and get out as fast as possible if you teach locals the core skills of permaculture they'll adapt it to their own culture but it's it's and they'll teach it in their own way and so what we're learning is what are the core things we need in our communities and the obvious ones are things like seed banks, but it's also decentralized microgrid systems. Huh. I mean, imagine if you had a full-time salaried permaculturalist in your neighborhood as their job, and they were gonna, you know, what would your neighborhood look like in five years, 10 years? Huh. How do we, how do we, what's, where's the pilot project money for that? Like I would yeah. love to do that. So permaculture for me, it's a design methodology for living large in a small footprint learning skills to help you be a valuable member of your community with a mind to um, the challenges ahead. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that's an amazing definition and I think uh, amazing insight in terms of how it relates to, to climate change and moving forward. So how do we get to a place where we can kind of bring that to a reality on a larger scale? I mean, is it a matter of kind of political imposition of like that kind of a belief in terms of local politics? Or is it a matter of just having, you know, a hundred schools teaching this across the country and, you know, person by person trying to convert people, educate people? It's all of that. I mean, you know, the, the, the doom and gloom part of what's happening in the world right now, pandemic aside, is that you know, as the climate change um, reality intensifies over the next years, we're going to be losing more farms. We're going to be having more floods. We're getting more fires. We're going to, you know, so the, 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 the design sensibility for me, this is not true for everyone. It really shifts to, you know, there's how, so going the zone zero, the zone one, like going out in these zones, you know, in terms of how you're going to affect change. First of all, I have to have hope <laughs> that change is possible. And so what I'm finding with my audiences is that there's this, there's this deep despair that people are feeling. And part of it is that they are, they're paralyzed. They don't know what to do. I so firmly I, agree with that. Yeah. So we have to, we have to, this is the, this is the story. This is the cosmology part of it. This is the storytelling part of it. And, you know, so it's like on the scale of like not to woo woo, like I'm kind of woo, like I'm kind of in the middle. I can, I can go both ways with my clients, but it's helping people to tap into that deeper wellspring of, of hope and, and can do like, but they need leadership there. 
So what I'm doing with my career now is after these decades of designing, consulting and teaching and large scale agroforestry systems and transitioning to regenerative ag and all of these big policy things and, you know, affordable housing yurts, all of that stuff. What's distilling for me at this moment is that is what I'm calling drops fill buckets. And I'm just about to launch my new website permaculturenow.org. And I'm also going to be starting a podcast. I'm going to start with women who are doing boots in the grounds projects. And so we're going to look at not just people that are talking about it, but people that are actually right now affecting change in their landscapes. And so if you think of your bucket, right, if you're a bucket, like how, how, where's your wellspring? How, how do we get you to a place where you're overflowing and you're radiant and you're a radiant being and you're able to overflow this knowledge and this can do and these skills and I want to help other people get to a radiant place as well. Uh -huh. So in the drops fill buckets, what are the drops? Let's identify the drops. The drops are eat local, buy organic, you know, grow some, grow a fruit tree. Like if you break it down, you know that if you have a leak and you put a bucket under the sink, uh -huh by morning that bucket might be full right so like let's get people skilled up with their drops you know and let's get people excited about doing that i did a covid response project this last year um called ohana gardens ohana in hawaii means it both means your family but it also means your household but it also means your your neighbors like your, your ohana can kind of be almost yeah. of various scales right but the ohana are the people that you care for and the people that you love and that you're caring for and you're participating in their well-being and their ohana right and so ohana gardens was we were teaching people how to grow backyard and neighborhood food that was our charter we got money from the county thank you maui county and uh, what we landed on was vegetables are hard in the tropics and so what we what i designed was a, a Maui take on permaculture fruit tree guilds, and we call them food islands. Mm. Now, why were food islands so incredibly popular over this last year? Why did people just like jump on board with like crying with with joy over their food islands? Well, one, the concept is, is that you plant your fruit tree. And if you leave it all alone in the sun and the wind and the grass, it's going to really struggle. Right. So this is a metaphor for you. Right. If you're all alone by yourself trying to make solutions happen, you're going to get battered and you might you might fail at that. Right. Mm -hmm. So what do you need to plant around the fruit tree that's going to make the fruit tree bear fruit? And while you have all this time and space while that fruit tree is maturing, what can you put in the understory that's going to give a variety of yields? Well, let's just tick off the yields. Food. Yay. I have all this time and space to grow food. I also want to attract pollinators. Yay, I'm going to put some flowers. I'm going to put some self-seeding flowers in there. Okay, I'm going to put some sweet potatoes. Maybe I'm going to put a chili pepper bush. So you have the that mini food forest uh -huh. thing in your food island, right? So you have the ground covers. You have, so you both have the layers of the food forest, the seven layers. Then you also have the niches. So the niches are nitrogen fixing and they're pollinator trackers. So what we did was we would identify a person who wanted a food island workshop. So the workshops had a minimum of five people. They had to bring the people. I would come teach the workshop and then we would do the installation. Hmm. And depending on their income level, we would provide them with everything or they would provide the wood chips and the soil and labor and we would bring all the plants. So I would show up with the truck and there would be all the plants 
we'd do the workshop and people would be like, I didn't know that. I didn't know. I never knew that. I, wow, I just learned so much. Thank you so much. And then we'd go out and plant it. And then we'd have beer and pizza after and people were laughing. And, and at the end, the, the, the looks on their faces of, I'm going home right now and I'm planning one too. And so the people who posted their kuleana, their responsibility was to plant it forward, not pay it forward. They had to plant it forward. So we would donate through the Ohana Gardens, the trees and the understory plants and the kuleana of the host who just got all that free labor was to make sure that the people that took plants away got them in their backyards planted as well. And so for every one that we did as a workshop, we probably you know, propagated 10 or more food islands often in the same neighborhood. That's now awesome. neighbors met each other that didn't know each other. Mm -hmm. But why was that so successful? One, it was a ton of fun. Mm -hmm. Two, there was something they got, something that the county tax money paid for. They were so grateful. Three, it was a workshop and they learned a lot. And it's doable. It's mm -hmm. not hard. It's not out of your skill set. It's just mm -hmm. if you follow these basic ingredients, you're going to create your own recipe. I'm not giving you the recipe. It's not like if you leave out the nitrogen fixture, it will fail. Like here's the core thing. So then we wrote a handbook and I curated the art on that. And that handbook should be available soon. I'll have it on my Facebook page, on my website really soon. Um, so there's just an example of a drop that fills buckets, right? So if you can imagine a neighborhood that has, you know, the community asset mapping done. Like I live in a subdivision right now, there's probably half the fruit that grows in this neighborhood rots in the ground. Mm. Maybe they're just elderly and they can't get to it. Maybe uh -huh. they don't like oranges. Like maybe they don't care. Maybe it's just too, maybe it's overgrown or maybe they didn't prune yeah. it. Who knows? Like it's like there's all these things we can do to um, help people participate and shift. Yeah. And so there's, there's, there's like, so there's, there's the drops full buckets. So, by participating in that workshop, people's, people would call me the next day crying. Like uh -huh. seriously, like it moved them so much to know that they could and were part of a solution. I can't emphasize how important that is. Well, and, and the key there, I think, in terms of the optimism is really community, right? It's reestablishing those connections to other people to have the hope to feel the connection because i mean the reality is in everyday life we're basically uh driven by the economy and by the society to be driven apart you know whether it's in terms of our commute our work you know how we treat each other and it has to be purposeful in terms of establishing community and that's one of the reasons i i love maui and the story about the the fallen fruit. I I saw that myself one time. Uh, we were staying at a at a B and B, and they had starfruit trees. I had never seen starfruit trees, and there were just hundreds of them on the ground. I picked a few off the tree, and I'm like, oh my god, this is incredible. I'm like, how has nobody on the mainland ever discovered this? This is like, you know, and yet there is just all this wastage. I'm like. That just should not be. I'm like, yeah, you, know, you should have yeah. people, you know, hey, let me come by. I'll pick a couple of your things and we'll share. Yeah, we, have a, 
Yep, we have a nonprofit on Maui called the Common Ground Collective, and what they do is they go they go and harvest your trees, and then they take it to the schools and the food bank, and yeah, they do all kinds of things with it. They get yeah. funded by the county too, and uh, but we need every community needs a Common Ground Collective, right? Exactly. Every community needs an Ohana Gardens, and so this is the again this is the policy stuff. I think a lot of people have no idea how to engage with policy work and how much influence they have. Yeah. If you show up and testify, and you know tell the county they should fund this or do that. They listen, you know, they, they have to, they, you're their constituents. The people who make the time to go be part of that, you know, policy equation, whether you're sitting on a, a, a committee or not, it's just like even just showing up to testify is important. And that's, that's okay. relevant everywhere. I mean, it's not just Maui. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, percent. So we're, so again, so where I am in my career is like, I am, you know, I've focused very much in the last few years on climate change, agroforestry, buffering strategies for climate change. You know, we're seeing longer prolonged, prolonged droughts. You already know that. We already know the consequences of that. The other thing we're seeing are is less rain, but more rain events. And so these big deluges that come down, that erode and destroy and wipe away. And, and so the, the, the permaculture strategies for managing the hydrology on your site, like that kind of design stuff, we need to see that at at larger scales and infiltrating, you know, metaphorically, but literally in actually into, um, you know, urban planning and rural or suburban planning. Like, what does it look like to have larger earthworks that are going to, you know, trap and store Absolutely. water across the landscape and also protect our reefs? Because like for us, like if the watershed like sluices down, it kills the reef. And now we have an extra you know, climate change negative feedback loop. So we have to protect the reefs. We have to protect the watershed. We have to plant trees up, you know, and it's not, I'm not saying that these are easy things to just do overnight, but you, but we you know there's like the, the couple great sayings of you know, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. You know, the next best time is right now. And it's the same thing with these larger systemic, you know, changes that are coming our way is, you know, the best time to get involved is today. And it's like, let's just like, think about where you want to um, get educated. What, what do you want to learn? Like I said before, what repository of knowledge do you want to become? Like, how are you participating in shift? Those are the big questions for me. And the leadership in the permaculture world, I think needs to step up to breaking that down into basic everyday things we all do that, again, give you that little piece of hope and make you part of a community and make you proud, like obtain a yield. Like that's a permaculture principle. You know, how do you, when, when you grow that first tomato and you take it to your friend's house, you're like, I grew this tomato. Like, I know that sounds <laughs> silly. That drop fills a bucket. Well, one, you're proud of yourself. Two, you get accolades from your community. What a delicious tomato. And three, you're going to, maybe you'll keep doing it. You know, like now you, you're on a, you're specializing, right? You're learning something you want to get good at. And, um, and it leads to other things, you know, you start exploring the uh, environment around you and like, hell, if I can do that, I can do this, or at least I can try and find out. Yeah, you draw connections. And I, I don't know how to say this more emotionally, is that, you know, the, the things that we, the, the choices that you and I and our colleagues and our friends and our communities make now right now, these are the things that are going to determine whether our tribes not just survive, but thrive. If we don't start, we have this little window of time, we have this little grace period left where we know what has happened and this energy is sent 
pulse, right? We're on this peak of this little precipice of peak oil, peak water, peak everything, peak climate change, and it's going to keep going up. But what are we doing right at this juncture that is going to help change in a good way moving forward or whether it's in biodiversity and native plants or whether it's in water systems i don't really care whether you write a song that inspires people like if we don't integrate the arts into all of this like what's the point right if you don't have fun what's the point you have to find your joy in shift and so i want to see you know more interdependence i want to see people finding their happiness in these things and you know taking that permaculture design course where you get grounded in these fundamentals sort of birthright knowledge kind of stuff where we're leaning heavily on indigenous wisdom where we're looking at these you know solutions where humans have figured out how to stay in one place over thousands of years and not just trash the system and move on like this, this is our this is our responsibility right now and uh you know i look forward to you know if people want to reach out to me you know my email is jenny at permaculturenow.org um, I love to do public speaking. I like to get up on a stage. I have a couple great presentations that I, you know, give to communities and all kinds of, I, I do all kinds of conferences. But I think that starting with that message of hope and inspiring people um, in their shift uh -huh. so that they can find their way to living life differently. And it may involve less travel. Or how about, how about if you're going to travel, plant your carbon footprint before you leave on your trip. You know, it's like, let's, let's, let's have a culture of that. Like, let's have a culture of why give people a piece of crap, plastic crap for Christmas or for holidays when you could give them a fruit tree. Like, yeah. where, like if every child that was born and every person that died, someone planted a tree, we'd be in a good place, right? So yeah. what, what does that all look like over time? Exactly. All excellent points. And uh, I would urge people to, uh, again, look you up on uh, Facebook, um, follow your your work because it is it's really inspiring to uh to see but also to uh try to do on your own so um thanks again for taking the time to chat and i have a feeling we'll have to do a lot more of these i mean in the, <laughs> in the coming in the coming years so i appreciate it thanks a lot jen oh yeah thanks for having me on awesome